This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Postmodern Table Talk. Montreal, Open City. Present Tense Fantasy. And the RFK Scooby-Doo Time Ripple. Welcome to the island you only think you remember. Welcome to the Island is the first adventure anthology for the third edition of the Over the Edge RPG. It features four original storylines by award-winning authors, each with hooks for different character types, making it easy to bring the action to your campaign when and where it's needed. Launch brand new stories, add intriguing complications to existing arcs, or create exciting one-shots that bring the weird to your gaming table. Take a road trip with an ominous twist. Overthrow the government. Explore the place you only think you remember in Welcome to the Island. It's available now from Atlas Games. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. The show notes you only think you remember. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, and the uh, zesty crunching of Generation Z-style Doritos. Doritos who, uh, who believe in a, that a, a new world can be created by eating Doritos. Tell us that we're once more in the gaming hut, but we're not just in any old gaming hut uh, with uh, Peter Frampton uh, coming alive, but we're in the gaming hut where Peter Frampton and Ken are coming alive, and they're coming alive with Crazy Generation Z or Z. I guess they're Z. They're, they're on your side of the border. Yeah, they're Z in America. Right. Meme talk and table talk. Ken, you found a whole new dimension with the kids today. Uh, to tell us about it. Yeah, this is something that I have not seen before. And I'm going to preface this by saying that I and uh, many other GMs, I know uh, the great Will Hindmarch tends to do this as well, have a habit at times in gaming of describing the action uh, cinematically, by which I mean you say things like it cuts to or fades out on or there's a screen wipe and now you describe the, 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 the exotic city or the jungle or whatever. Um, you say things like this would be where the camera Sometimes you would say this would be where the camera would, uh, move to show you their eye twitching. If, if you're trying to hand them a, uh, you know, a, a sense trouble or a, or a psychology, uh, result. So and, and describing that things, I, that I do as well. Yeah. And the right. useful thing about that, uh, the reason to do, to do that as a, as a tip is that it helps players get into the mindset of what they're doing as a as a uh, literary or filmic conceit that so you're not getting hung up on oh we're simulating a reality here ergo we must carefully work out every single detail of how we rendezvous uh, and go through 20 minutes of logistics about a bunch of uh, uninteresting nonsense because that would logically follow but rather you cut to the moment at the cafe when you're all together and no one ever stops to think about how you uh, knew to all meet up together. You just do. And here's the interesting stuff. Go. Right. And uh, there's lots of other ways you can do that. I think in, you know, as far back as the old uh, Call of Cthulhu Die 20, I was giving advice about how to play things as a montage. So the, the, the notion of interweaving cinema or filmed entertainment 
into games is not unique to my Fall of Delta Green players. What is unique in my experience to my Fall of Delta Green players is the degree to which the conceit then becomes a bigger meta concept underlying the game. And even in my uh, 13th Age game, which is primarily with Generation X players, one or two uh, very late Xers or very early Zs uh, Zoomers in in the mix, but by and large, a big Gen X crowd, uh, there is a conceit that certain things are being done, like when, when a, a beloved villain or, or NPC reappears, they're like, oh, it must be sweeps. We're having the, uh, the beloved character comes back or they describe things in terms of, okay, what happens is in post the, the animators put it because the current conceit with the 13th age game is that it's an anime sort of crossover product. So they talk about, you know, animation and things like that in terms of the technique. And so there's still a very uh, media savvy knowingness to it. And that is common to my Gen X players as a whole. And I think that we've done that. We do that more in lighthearted games and less in horror games, which is fine. With my Fall of Delta Green game, which is my subsidiary alternate Wednesday game, which I started with a bunch of uh, Zoomers. So it's, it's both uh, subsidiary and alternate. It's both subsidiary and alternate. Um, but now it is its own game, uh, a proud and beautiful, just like my Monday game. Uh, I, I started that with a bunch of, uh, of, of Zoomers. And the, my secret goal was to get a bunch of very bright possibly game design interested people introduced to gumshoe that was sort of just doing doing my part a little missionary work yeah, n- nothing ulterior about that at all really. no, no, nothing whatsoever it's just simple simple act of grace and beauty on my part but what happened with them is in addition to the rest of the concept of this game is a television series And so we discuss things in cinematic terms. Every session ends with a song over the credits. So I find a period song that recapitulates the action of the, of the session and I I play it. And that's our our sort of, you know, uh, fade out moment. Uh, so players actually stop and listen to the, they do. They do. Yeah. And and so it's a, it's, it's a beautiful shared conceit. And again, I don't think that that is particularly unique to, to Gen Z, but what they have done is to inhabit as part of the table talk, the notion of the people on the internet commenting on the show that is the game. And again, in my generation X 13th age game, people sometimes say, Oh, the fans are going to love this. Or the fans complain that uh, uh, Craig's character didn't cast that spell that solved everything, you know, 10 minutes ago at the beginning of the fight. Uh, because they don't understand what daily spells are. And right, so, so your Delta Green characters are also role-playing the fans on the internet. Right, my players are also role-playing the fans on the internet in a much more direct way than just meta saying, oh, the fans love this. This is big table talk discussion. So an NPC is introduced and the fans go wild, or every single pairing of the characters is being shipped by some community of fans that is inventing a romantic relationship between them. And so they all have names. So um, uh, one character's name is Joe and another character's name is Buddy. And so Juddy is a thing. And so they talk, oh, is the, the Juddy community loves this. This is big with Juddies. And now, now, is there any romantic interaction actually between the characters? None whatsoever. No, just, just like a totally real shipped. show. Okay. It's just all completely internet uh, fan sensation. I mean, there's there's emotional interaction because, again, my, my players, first of all, are very, very good. And second of all, because... 
I am letting them drive the story a little more than uh, I might in, in some other games. And so they are playing towards what I think are sort of their comfort zones of having emotional moments, even sort of draining emotional moments. They act as sort of like um, a leavener for the horrors because it's a fall of Delta green game and there's plenty of horror. And so they have these emotional moments that, 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 uh, that tie in uh, thematically or tie in in character senses, but don't, um, but at least don't surround them by ghouls trying to rip their heads off or whatever. But then the fan communities as part of the table talk will go crazy. So two characters will be playing out a scene and the players who are not in that scene will occasionally share. And in a non-disruptive way, I, ha- I hasten to add, you know, the notion that, um, you know, the, the, oh, the, the fan community is, is really going crazy about this. They're doing this specific thing. And that has been a fun meta thing to keep, keep track of because again, there's no sense in which the game is realer than the imagined fan community response to the imaginary television show based on the game because they're both imagined. They're all things that happen at the table. So they're table talk that contributes to uh, emotional states at the table and investment and involvement. And it's a thing that as the GM, I need to keep track of and very occasionally partake in mostly I leave it to the the kids to do but now that we're playing online because of the 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 covids um we've gone and we always used to play on slack just at the table because it was a great way to throw up uh visual aids so for example I found a a crazy conspiracy guy who found a bunch of pictures in a in a woods in Adirond in the Adirondacks and in the scenario I basically recapitulated the Dyatlov Pass incident but in the Adirondack Mountains, I randomly found a, a map of the Adirondack Mountains, a, a, a topo map that gave me a, a grid coordinate where there was lots of good stuff. And then, as always, in my experience, you find a topo map and there's going to be something called Lost Dutchman Hill or Witch Hill or something else. And you're like, well, there you go. That's obviously where the Migo are. And I, I, I Googled around and found a guy from that area who claimed that there was a secret army base experimenting on children. And he had lots of pictures uh, that purportedly proved that the pictures are indeed creepy and weird. So I would throw those up into the slack as the pictures as, as literally what they found uh, when it's just pictures of the facility or pictures of kids that they find in a, in a file folder, you know, jammed behind an old file cabinet and they, and they got overlooked. So that's a good thing to do anyway, is at the table, just throw up, visual aids on the slack. But uh, now I think that the extra freedom of being at home at their own computer has unleashed some beautiful liberatory concept because now the player, uh, the players who are not involved in a scene immediately throw up memes that are created by the fan community on the, uh, the imaginary fan community on the imaginary internet of the imaginary television show based on the campaign. Right. Cause in remote play, it's not nearly as disruptive to be, typing away on your device, throwing up a graphic uh, and, uh, you know, w- working in, in GIMP or Photoshop or whatever while other people are doing things. Because exactly. A, more apparent and more distracting. But just as it's a lot easier in remote play to uh, find and research something on the fly and fit it in as if you meant to have it there all along, it's got to be easier for the, the, the kibitzers uh, to, uh, to throw in stuff. Right. And in a way, it keeps them more involved with the game because 
and that they're responding to the action on this. And again, they, they're excellent players. They're not blow offs. They're not goofs. They're super terrific, super involved, super centered players. I'm delighted with every last one of them. I'm most delighted with Hannah. She's my favorite, but I'm very delighted with all of them. And they express that involvement in this wild online gaming time with these uh, crazy fan reactions. So, for example, everyone's familiar with the meme of the of the space guy picking a button, right? If, if you're not good, stay off the internet. It's a waste right. of everyone's valuable time. So there's uh, a button labeled following the plan and another button labeled some magic nonsense. And he's trying to decide which it is. So that's, you know, th- that's a, many of the memes are very, um, uh, uh, deliberately focused, you know, more directly into the game, but, but it's, it's all the wild sort of thing. Uh, one of the characters improvises in talking to a witness to try and get her to open up. The player uh, says, Oh, I, uh, you know, because they suspect rightly that, uh, the witness's childhood imaginary friends were ghouls. And so they're trying to get a description and, and some actionable intel out of this. And so the, the, the interrogating character says, uh, when I was a kid, I had a friend named Johnson the Frog. And so immediately up comes the meme, distracted boyfriend, Delta Green fans. The regular girlfriend is a rich, mysterious plot about man's place in the universe. <laughs> the the girl in red is Johnson the Frog. So this sort of thing just pops up in the general chat as the game is ongoing. And again, it's a way for me to keep track of, you know, the emotional temperature at the table a way to keep track of what is engaging the players. Yes. And motivation for the players to pay attention, like with their distracted time when they're off stage, to still be paying attention so right. they can whip up a dank meme. And, and, and so the, the, the notion though, that, you know, the, in the olden days, Robin, when you and I were sitting around high school chemistry tables after school, we literally, we had to keep track of, you know, what were the troglodytes up to? And, and, and was, um, uh, rich, uh, cheating on his die rolls. And that was pretty much it as far as cognitive load for running uh, games. And now in this expanded social sphere universe, there is this level of crazy depth and weird, ironic. It's, it's not information. It's not emotion, but it's some sort of weird thing between those. This, right. this well, ironic we were talking about uh, voices and modes in at, at the table yeah. and how they all interweave with each other. Mm-hmm. And we uh, named uh, three or four of them. And here's number five. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. They've layered yet another uh, a voice on top of uh, the action. The, uh, I mean, we did sort of talk about the chorus, but this is like uh, the chorus cubed. Yeah. This is the chorus's Reddit <laughs> subreddit chorus. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a wild experience as a game master and I, th- I hope that it's fun for the players. They all say it's fun. They're, they're very well. So do you up. try to introduce things in order to provoke memes or is that too many little no, players down the no, rabbit hole? That would be, that would be, first of all, it's, it's, uh, it's a job of work enough just to run a game. <laughs> and second of all, like I suspect most GMs, I only have the faintest idea of what players will seize on. In the minute. I mean, I can sort of sit back now and say, oh, well, obviously they would have gone hog wild for a player character's imaginary pretend frog. That, that, that's, that's just, uh, that's got sexy written all over it. But in the moment, what I'm trying to do is play the other, uh, NPC and, and, and 
provide dialogue that is creepy and informative and uh, somehow uh, demonstrates the, the character traits that I want them to take away from the, the girl in the scene. And so, you know, I can't be, I, I can't be seeding things. And then sometimes it's just, you know, things will happen in the course of the game. Uh, a couple of lucky shots with an anti-material rifle knocks out two Jeeps by shooting through the engine block. Uh, the player rolls sixes both times on damage. And so it's like, yep, you've, You've basically disabled that Jeep with your anti-material rifle. Good job. And so, you know, up comes the meme, I hate engine block. And, and it, I couldn't have predicted that. I couldn't have made that happen. The dice made that happen. But the commentary on that and the uh, and the way that it's expressed is sort of, you know, congratulating the player on his successes while also, in a way, ironically taking the piss out of them a little bit. And so it's, it's, it's a fun, if, as I say, challenging at times, a new dimension to, to look at the game. And again, the, in, the sort of the instinct is to say, no, 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 the game is the real thing. And all this is just nonsense, but the game isn't any realer than the memeing about the community, about the game, because it's all stuff that you're making up at the table together to create this story. And it, it doesn't, in, in my experience anyway, it doesn't detract from the scenes of actual horror or tension or suspense or, or combat. The, the engine block, uh, memes are being made by players not in the gunfight. Uh, when all the players are together at the scene, um, they're, they're very engaged. I, I maybe have a sense that they can't wait to jump on and, and meme the heck out of it once the scene ends, but that's, uh, that's them being engaged. That's them being engaged not just uh, directly, but also ironically. And that seems like a good thing to me. Yeah, the original version of this, back in the era of the slide rule and the chemistry table in high school, was quoting Python. Right. And just like quoting Python, you are uh, riffing on something that is happening in the game and uh, adding it to a, uh, a an existing comedy bit. And uh, much so, more so in this example than in the Python example, than adding another layer onto it. But, you know, comic riffing with pop culture uh, has always been part of the mix, and they're just uh, taking it to uh, an, an nth level, uh, as it were. Right. Uh, and uh, once I've said nth level, uh, among the many things that ends a segment on this show, that's one of the key phrases. Turns so, out to be one of them, right. Exactly, yes, because uh, after the nth level comes a commercial and another segment. They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrane Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet from gumshoe master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King role-playing game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Balapoc Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimonde, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The wars, where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie, shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat. 
defeat. This is normal now, our ordinary present day. Or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe. Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions. Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris. And The Missing and the Lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality. Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before or it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrane Press store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or The Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pelgranepress.com slash shop. Sound of teletype, gunshots off, police siren, screeching brakes. This is Crime Blotter. Dun dun dun. Today on Crime Blotter, Open City, Montreal. And since I've said something Canadian, and also <laughs> since I'm introducing this segment, it implies, Robin, that you have been immersing yourself in the glory of insert Montreal nickname here for possibly for your games set also in Canada. Yes, indeed. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm coming across all sorts of segment worthy things as I do research for my uh, very, very variant uh, fall of Delta green, uh lighthearted uh, mystery game. And the scenario we just wrapped up was set in Montreal open city. So those of you who are not uh, Canadian might uh, think of the entire uh, nation as a, a placid, crimeless place, especially back in, in the day. But Montreal was basically the Vegas of the North. It was an open city uh, with uh, quite uh, heavy-duty uh, corruption. And uh, in its heyday in this era from the uh, 40s until uh, the end of the 50s when things uh, started getting cleaned up, uh, at least putatively. It uh, had over 200 nightclubs and uh, lots of illegal gambling and uh, brothels and uh, heroin smuggling back in the background. And Montreal itself is a uh, fascinating uh, place. It is sort of the uh, the polyglot uh, city of, of Quebec. And at that time was the largest city in Canada and was home to a lot of uh, rich Anglos who uh, lived in and around Mount Royal, the big uh, giant hill in the middle of the city. where And of course, any city where there's a hill, the rich people live on the hill. But down at the bottom of the hill, uh, there's not just local uh, Quebecois people, but various communities uh, involved in uh, serving a, uh, a trade, catering a lot to, uh, to travelers uh, from all around uh, North America, coming for the excitement and vice and sin of uh, Montreal. And so... Uh, I wound up doing a bunch of uh, research on the on the characters and the conflicts, and uh, it's just really fun and colorful uh, with a lot of great detail. So, for example, uh, in any city with a lot of vice, who is the uh, chief facilitator of vice? Well, the vice squad, of course. That's why they call it that. And so right. the Montreal cops uh, famously were cooperative uh, in, in the efforts to maintain uh, Montreal's open city status. But of course, they had to behave as if 
they were cracking down on crime. So there was a, a rule that if you found a gambling establishment, you would bust it and you'd put a lock on the door. And that would show that this gambling den had been shut down. Because as you know, Ken, when you need to shut something down, you just put a lock in the door and then everything's fine. It's not like they all moved to yeah. the hotel room next well, door. Well, in Canada, I assume that the criminals come to the come to the area and they say, oh, it's, it's been locked and they go home. They don't continue to gamble. Right. <laughs> that would be the logical uh, inference. Exactly so. Uh, and uh, sometimes the, the cops would help move all the gambling tables next door. Uh, in some of the establishments, there were doors to nowhere. There's little, literally a door on the wall that was just screwed into the wall, the cops would put a lock on that and then go, having done their job. And <laughs> the, the reason they were able to do that is that they were paying off uh, the, the mayor of Montreal, uh, Chameleon Hood, and he was a fighting left populist. And uh, when you're on the fighting left, where do you get your money from? Not the rich people on the hill. You get it from your buddies, the bag men who are delivering mob cash for your uh, re-election. And uh, the uh, figures in the Montreal mob, uh, up until 1954, uh, there was a bit of a branch plant situation going on where a, a hitman from the Genovese family uh, was sent by the Bananos from New York to run crime, particularly the French Connection, the famous heroin smuggling uh, ring from New York. And he was a Carmine Galante, otherwise known as Mr. Cigar, or uh, Lilo, which was Italian for cigar. And uh, everyone can imagine why he got that nickname, not one of the more colorful mob nicknames, really. The uh, local head of, of the mob at that time is a guy named Vic or Vincenzo Catroni. Nicknamed Vic the Egg. Vic the Egg, because he has a big bald head. Yep. And there are so few Italians in Montreal that you had to stick together. So in New York, you might only want to deal with other Sicilians. But here... Galante and Catroni were best buds, even though uh, Catroni was a Calabrian, not Sicilian. And they were like godfathers to each other's uh, children. And so together, they're running like 56 to 66% of all the heroin going into uh, uh, North America. Yeah, that's the, that's the North American end of the French connection. Yes, exactly. Um, the Italian mob in the 50s takes over from the, uh, the Jewish mob in the 40s. And uh, there's some exciting characters uh, related to that. And I think you've uh, got some research on them. Yeah, um, there was a uh, the, the boss of the of the scene in Montreal, the, the vice scene is known as the edge man. And in the 40s or rather in the 30s, the boss, the, the edge man of Montreal was a, a Jewish uh, gambling uh, kingpin uh, named Harry Davis. And Harry Davis was a, a gambling kingpin by by uh, nature and diversified because, for example, in 1933, he's arrested for drug trafficking and he has to run his empire from jail until uh, 1945 when he's released. And as so often happens, a mobster gets released and comes out and uh, thinks, well, now I can just move back into my into my kingdom and others have other ideas because <laughs> Harry Davis is gunned down on July 25th, 1946, leaving his crown as the uh, edge man of Montreal to another Jewish gambler named Harry, which does not make Googling things any easier. Good old Harry Ship. Harry Ship. And Harry Ship ran a nightclub called the Chez Paris. <laughs> which is a name so ridiculously on the nose, you would have invented it, uh, but it was a real thing. 
and he gets arrested in 1948 during the morality squad crackdown. And I love the notion that, um, the, the vice squad is in charge of vice in Canada. So obviously there must be a morality squad. And, uh, the morality squad is run by a lawyer, uh, sort of a rabble rouser named, uh, Pacifique Pax was his nickname, Pacifique Plant or Plante. I'm not sure where the, whether the, there's a, an E on that. Or uh, the, it would just be Plant, that. as in Jacques Plant, the hockey player. All right. So Pacifique Plant, and he uh, is sort of put in charge of the morality squad, which is ginned up actually by that killing of Harry Davis, because even in 1946, I assume people being gunned down on the streets of Montreal was not super common and was a big scandal. And so uh, he has been put in charge of the morality squad and runs it uh, right up until people start noticing he's actually arresting people. The, the mayor does not care for that. No, he does not. And so he gets thrown off the morality squad in 1950, but he goes and he works with a fellow named Jean Drapeau, who is a politician. And, and Jean Drapeau becomes the famous long-serving iconic mayor of Montreal. Right. And it's on the back of what's called the Caron Inquiry, which is Drapeau and Plant uh, working together to just rabble rouse and say awful, awful things about the current mayor and his connections to organized crime. Right. When uh, Davis is gunned down, uh, his bodyguard, a uh, bank robber named Luigi uh, Louis Greco, uh, takes over his operation. Which cats uh, just a little light on how he came to be gunned down, perhaps. <laughs> I, I'm not sure how clear that is, uh, but certainly Louis knew how to handle himself. And uh, his right-hand uh, man is a guy named Frank Protrula. You might think from that name that he's Italian, and uh, maybe others were confused and hired him because they thought he was Italian. He was actually Ukrainian. He's a hothead. And this is how you get uh, the, the Irish gangs in Montreal into the story. They're living in a place called Griffintown, which these days is a beautifully gentrified neighborhood and uh, back then was the Irish slum. And so uh, their role in the crime ecosystem is basically as muscle. So they are available for hire to people like uh, Frankie P, Frank Pertula. And Pertula makes it until 58. That uh, is a couple years into the Drapeau uh, reign. And uh, he just becomes inconvenient to Greco. And uh, one of the rumors is that he winds up in a meat grinder in uh, one of Greco's uh, many pizza joints. Um, hopefully uh, not actually on the pizza. Hopefully, hopefully, but who can say? <laughs> the other thing that the Irish gangs do, and this is the same thing that the uh, Irish mob in Boston used to do, is they would run uh, heists. They would heist places. And their sort of role in the ecosystem was to generate churn and profit for the fences. And the fences were usually the guys that were tied in to the more formal mobs, uh, whether they be Italian or Jewish. And uh, the greatest of the Irish West End gang heisters in the 40s and 50s was Keith Rocky Pearson. And Keith Rocky Pearson also did his share of election work. So one assumes that over in Griffintown, it's Rocky Pearson's boys that are gathering up all the votes and making sure that everyone uh, returns Mayor Hood to power. It's important to be part of the political process. It is. It is. He was, according to the Coolopolis blog, which I don't know if if you've been looking at it, Robin, but I found it a gold mine for, for this uh, research period. Uh, according to the Coolopolis blog, he was the guy to go to if you wanted an election fixed 
in, in Montreal. So, uh, he might have been the equivalent of the, uh, black, uh, numbers, uh, racket kings in Chicago who would basically take over fixing their neighborhoods and then work with the, the in overwhelmingly white machine to return votes the way that they needed them returned. And, uh, uh, Rocky Pearson comes to a bad end or maybe a good end. I don't know. Um, but he is beaten to death with hammers by his own gang in 1961. So I'm going to call that a bad end. I'm going to stick out my, my neck <laughs> it's, and say it's a that. workplace dispute at, at the very least. Yep. Um, and one of the people who beat him to death with hammers was a Royal Canadian mounted police informant. And he was the, the three guys say, wait outside. We're going to go talk to Rocky. They go in, they talk to Rocky, and then they call him in and he's thinking, oh, they've found out I'm a, a Mountie. I'm doomed. He goes in and they hand him a bloody hammer and say, hit Rocky with it so that you're part of the murder. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just really just to keep him on side so that he wouldn't, you know, split to anybody about who did the killing. And so much later, he's revealed to be a, a Mountie informer. And there's, of course, questions like, you hit a guy with a hammer and his defense was he was dead at the time. I hit a corpse with a hammer. Who hasn't done that? On the scale of stuff, the RCMP has gotten up years, <laughs> which is a future segment we'll have to get to. Yep. Uh, that, that's barely a footnote. Exactly. So uh, with uh, Rocky out of the picture or all over the picture, uh, his place is taken by a couple of uh, heisters named Frank Ryan and smiling Jack Maddox. And they sort of rise and become the sort of low-level heisters who take over the Irish gangs to the extent that things are being taken over. I think Frank Ryan and the Maddoxes sort of share power throughout the, our period, throughout the, the, the 60s and then into the 70s. I'm not exactly sure. I, I believe at least one of those two guys comes to a bad end, but they come to a bad end in, in modern times. So uh, that's the, the story of the, of the Irish gangs is that, as always, they're a, they're a, they're an idiot tool of the, of the real mob, but they're fun and colorful for all that. A couple of other characters who I alluded to but didn't get on stage very much in the uh, scenario that I ran because it was about ghosts. So it wasn't <laughs> just a mob story. It was mob and ghosts. Nice. It was uh, the burlesque queen, uh, Lily St. Cyr, had a uh, regular gig at uh, one of the nightclubs. And she was sort of the uh, unofficial mascot of the uh, Montreal nightlife. Uh, there's also a character uh, named Antoine D'Agostino, who, as you might guess from uh, being Antoine, uh, is actually uh, French. He was a uh, claim to be a member of the resistance who had come to Montreal. But in fact, he was a Gestapo collaborator who came to Montreal. And he was also involved in effectuating uh, the French connection. So anyway, Pax Plot becomes the police chief under Drapeau. And they, uh, they scrub the place clean. And after that, uh, there's never any crime organized crime in Montreal. There's never, never another corrupt mayor. When you go to Montreal and you see all the vast swaths of concrete erected everywhere, including a lot of places you wouldn't want to have concrete, that has nothing to do with anything or any sort of ongoing corruption. And everything all becomes completely Canadian right after the period we're talking about. Exactly. Right at the moment. At the, at the end of your campaign, Montreal reverts to being a bilingual Calgary, a place where nothing bad ever happens. And after we finish lying to you, it's time for us to move on to another segment.
The best of Ask Figeln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Stop this podcast from getting rubbed out at the barbot by throwing in with such stalwart Patreon backers as... Scott Jones! Corey Welch! Fred Kish! John W.S. Marvin! And Timothy Corum! The chatter of IBM Selectric Keys, the gurgle of mid-price bourbon into the jelly jar, welcome us once more into that... Cluttered Desk, where we will learn how to write good. And today, beloved Patreon backer Daniel Gill asks, I'm reading through Robin's Beating the Story right now and came across this quote. Buy me a drink sometime and I'll tell you what happens when you apply the present tense, absolutely widespread in literary fiction, to a fantasy novel. Well, Robin, since Daniel Gill is a beloved Patreon backer... It's the I equivalent think, of buying me a drink. I think he's bought you a drink. Yeah, over so, a period. Yeah. Spill. Uh, well, the answer is uh, a lot of people don't like it. Um, and so... Uh, <laughs> spill at slightly more length. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I haven't... I've, I've only paid for the, the coaster so far. So right, let's, yeah. let's get on to the whole beer. So uh, my Pathfinder novel, The World Wound Gambit, which is a uh, heist novel set in the fantasy world of... Uh, Galarian, uh, where the heisters are trying to knock over a demon tower and uh, and destroy it because a massive invasion by demons is bad for the swindling business. And uh, I wanted it to have a sense of immediacy to refer to its uh, sort of novel fantasy crossover. And also just in general, whenever I write fantasy, I'm looking for ways to scrub away the cruft of old timiness uh, that uh, so often still attends to that genre, particularly in the, right. in the style, but also in the uh, actions and behaviors of the characters. And uh, sometimes the, uh, at least George R. R. Martin has come along and introduced swears to fantasy. Right. But there's, I, I think, still an expectation of people who I think mostly just read fantasy that uh, what they're looking for is something backward looking stylistically and, uh, they uh, want something that they're comfortable with and uh, people should read the books that they want. I'm not calling people ingrates for not liking this stylistic choice, but my second Pathfinder novel I was asked to not do in the present tense. Our uh, pal uh, Gar Hanrahan, uh, his fantasy novels are also written in the present tense and he also got some stick for doing so. So it's not uh, just in the tie-in novel sphere that you're going to get pushback for using a modern literary technique. But of course, if you read widely, uh, not just uh, literary fiction, but also crime fiction, the use of present tense is in, in, indeed so widespread that you will often not notice it. It's just part of the panoply of possible voices and styles. And uh, 
and uh, no one remarks upon it. So the experiment, uh, like you say, uh, and I think, I don't know if this is necessarily the case, but my impression is that especially in fans of genres with very specific sort of codes or very powerful settler effects. Um, and this is, this was true in mysteries back in the transition from the golden age. It was true in science fiction, uh, when the new wave uh, became a thing. And it's true. I assume in fantasy, uh, if people get away from the Tolkien's or at least the Moorcocks and get into any kind of modernist, uh, writing style, that the negative reactions are always going to be an order of magnitude louder than the positive reactions. Because in, again, many people who are reading, uh, in these genres read only in these genres. And so they don't recognize an allusion. And so they're confused by it. Or even if they like it, they don't know how to praise it. They don't have the vocabulary. And so, I mean, it's very easy to say, this is not like Tolkien. This is, you know, in some kind of crazy tense, I don't like it. And the people who do like it maybe don't know why they like it. And so it's even leaving aside the, I would think uncontroversial assumption that um, uh, jerks are louder than normal people. I, I think that people who have a negative response, even if they're not jerks are going to be able to be, you know, they're first with it. And so is your sense, maybe not that the world wound gabbit has, has found its audience and, and is now a beloved classic of, of modern fantasy, but that, Fantasy authors in general, as you say, post George R. R. Martin putting swears in, and uh, there's all manner, I'm, I'm sure, of, of new wonderful fantasies that I will still not read. Um, is is your notion that the World Wound Gambit stylistic experiment would be more successful outside a gaming audience, or more successful just now instead of ten years ago? What's your What's your sense of the field? I guess. Well, actually, because you get metrics now on how much people like your books, even the World Wound Gambit grew in in estimation over time. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's uh, last time I checked, maybe it's all gone horribly pear-shaped, um, but the Amazon star rating was uh, high and the uh, Goodreads rating was pretty high in a way that sort of belied the initial reaction. And so uh, I think in particular, you're looking at the audience. If somebody who sort of bought into a series, a tie-in property, uh, are buying into the property and not necessarily you or your stylistic choices. And so you're going to get more uh, grumpy feedback to things that people don't like uh, early on. And then uh, over a broader uh, space of time, people will uh, discover the book in other ways and uh, be drawn uh, not to the fact that it's Pathfinder novel number four, but rather they read the blurb and they're interested in it. And, oh, it's a fantasy heist novel. And so those that group of people coming in later was uh, demonstrably more into it. So over time, it, uh, you know, people did wind up digging it. But uh, the, the point uh, being made in beating the story is just different audiences have different stylistic expectations. And you should know when you're breaking them and, and why you're doing it and ask yourself whether it's worth doing or right. not. I think it's absolutely worth doing to try and, you know, I don't know the next time I'll run, write a fantasy novel, but I still remain very interested in trying to modernize the style and range of techniques of, uh, of fantasy. And you'll also find people who have their own very specific oddball interpretations of what you're allowed, that, that somehow people who read fantasy have a lot more rules in their heads. And some of those rules <laughs> are not even the actual established rules of fiction. Uh, you know, sometimes there is another person who is very unhappy that it switched mental viewpoints in the, in the course of a scene. 
But it's like, well, there's a scene in Tolstoy where he breaks to tell you what the dog is thinking for a paragraph and goes right yeah. <laughs> back that there's that if, if you look at the, the broader range of style, you know, there's the, the rules are whatever you can get a, away with. And I'm and, and there's also, I think, a feeling in genre literature in general that you should never be aware of the style and uh, all of the genre writers I am interested in. Uh, they are the opposite of that. And right, uh, yeah. I, you know, w- would aspire to be the, the same as well. Yes. For, for, a, for a body of literature, uh, I speak specifically of fantasy game tie-in literature, uh, dependent entirely on Jack Vance, Robert E. Howard, and H.P. Lovecraft, perhaps we should be paying a little more attention to style <laughs> rather than the other way around, right? I that mean, would be my thesis, I mean, yes. uh, the closest thing to a sort of a, of a blank Heinlein-y modern prose fantasy author, I mean, I can't... Moorcock is even more interesting than that. And Moorcock is easily the dullest of the fathers of fantasy writing, don't you think? Or this of this subgenre of fantasy writing? Um, I don't think of him as, as dull. He's a little restrained, but an austerity, I think, is is an interesting style as well. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, you can go all the way to Hemingway and, and yeah. once more you're, you're making style out of it. But I, I, I mean, I think that that is a weird tick to have come out of a genre of literature that, like I say, descends, unlike most genres of literature, entirely from very, very involved stylists. Right. Right. So I think the author who really has the strongest footprint over all of this fantasy fiction, and particularly in gaming tie-ins, is not uh, Howard or or Vance or Moorcock, but Tolkien. And he had a very specific, highly... A developed style that is unlike everybody else's, except it's like everybody who then uh, went on to imitate him. And that is a style of sort of Thomas Hardy-esque, detailed, naturalistic writing about an imaginary world. And when uh, I think people who really love fantasy books and want them to still be sort of old-timey, they want to dive into uh, that sort of world and the period flavor matters to them a lot, that when they're saying, I would like a style that seems invisible to me. What they're meaning is I would like a modernized default sort of second or third generation Tolkien. And again, uh, that is uh, what they like and they're entitled to what they like. But when you suddenly start to draw inspiration from uh, Dashiell Hammett or Paul Auster uh, in your uh, prose writing, you should know that that's going to happen. And I think it's still worth uh, having the fight to keep writing things in different modes and tones and styles in, in fantasy, but the, the expectation of there being a default style in fantasy exists, whereas a, a default style in crime fiction is, well, there's no such thing because there's Simonon and Chandler and Thompson and Megan Abbott and, you know, that every, there's, there's a wide enough Mickey Spillane, Mickey Spillane, <laughs> that there's so many different uh, styles that you don't pick up a any random crime novel expecting it to yeah. basically to descend from one single titanically influential writer. Yeah. I mean, the closest parallel I can think of is that, uh, and not even in all of science fiction, but in hard science fiction, we will leave defining that for a future segment that we will never record. <laughs> I've already fallen asleep of border boredom. In that exactly. It is, is the expectation that people will write like Robert Heinlein. And even within hard SF, there are enough sort of variations and change-ups that I think it's not as dominant an expectation by the core fandom. But the core fandom of hard SF, I think, is also very much fans of Heinlein's very specific 
very recognizable again if you've read even widely in SF, not just widely in in world literature, is very uh, direct sort of uh, manly American Saturday evening post Collier's style of fiction, and that authors who write deliberately toward that they can maybe get away a little more with subject matter or political exceptions to the Heinlein legacy. And I'm thinking of people like um, uh, John Scalzi, for example, who writes very much like Heinlein. And I mean this in a good way, but then who sort of attempts to do things within his books that Heinlein uh, might not have tried uh, for one or another reason. And, and I think that someone like Scalzi, who is, who is a very good writer is aiming directly at that sort of core audience. And so the question is, if you find yourself thinking, well, the whole reason I want to write fantasy to bring it back to our topic is because I love Tolkien and I want to write like Tolkien in the same way that I'm sure. In fact, I'm literally sure a billion people have said, I want to write like Lovecraft because I love him. Um, if you if you have that instinct as a fantasy writer, I guess the question you have to ask yourself is, given that someone can just read Tolkien again, what am I writing that adds to the canon as opposed to just echoes the canon, right? I mean, no one wants to, at the end of their career to look back and say, oh, I, I just wrote Tolkien ripoffs my whole life. I mean, even Terry Brooks tried to change it up. He was a terrible writer, so it, it failed there too. But what do, you, what do you think about that? People who want to stay in that style, do you think that they... Um, are just well. I, I think that we've so far revealed uh, that uh, another giant genre of written fiction that people love uh, is outside both of our uh, sphere of awareness, and that's romance. Right. And yeah. I, I'm sure that there are uh, several very influential prose stylists who's laid down what prose is supposed to be, mm-hmm. and that anybody who deviates from that within all of the manifold subgenres and sub subgenres of romance writing. Uh, is also in for a rocky ride. I mean, I, I can take my guess that that stylist is Georgette Heyer, just based on how very many of her books I reshelved when I worked in libraries as as a uh, high schooler. But I would not know if Georgette Heyer is stylistically dominant or dominant in terms of plot or some other way. Because again, as you say, you and I, our romance knowledge is is piddling. I, I stop at the Brontes. That's that's where my romance knowledge begins and ends. Is Austin to Bronte? Well, Ken, when we've when we've run out of knowledge, it's time for us to acknowledge that it's time for us to head into our final segment. What are swords without sorceries? Nada. What are sorceries without swords? Bupkis. Thank goodness, then, for Arc Dream Publishing's Shane Ivey. Award-winning co-author of Delta Green, the role-playing game? Exactly that, Shane Ivey, who brings a haunted world alive for 5th edition fantasy with swords and sorceries. Explore crumbling civilizations separated by a dangerous sea and wild lands. Encounter surprises and exotic dangers. Seek your fortunes. Or find gruesome dad. In the tombs of forgotten gods and evils best left buried. Swords and Sorceries draws blade-slinging inspiration from ancient history and the myths and folklore that inspired the oldest RPGs. Seize all three Swords and Sorceries adventures today. The Sea Demon's Gold. The Song of the Sun Queens. The Tomb of 
Fire. Play in the Broken Empire or adapt them to any 5th edition campaign. Order and find bonus downloads and resources at swordsandsorceries.com. That's Swords and Sorceries from Shane Ivey. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that once more we're standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, we're coming to uh, a particularly uh, sort of iconic Time Incorporated problem, which is that uh, for many years, they've wanted to at least try out a timeline in which Robert Kennedy is not assassinated in 1968. And the reason they are only asking you to do this now is the known problem of the giant twist in the timeline that that would cause because there'd be a giant collateral cultural effect uh, to wit, as described in a recent Smithsonian article by Kevin Sandler, Scooby-Doo would not normally exist in a timeline where Kennedy is not assassinated. Um, the reason for that is that uh, there is a moral panic, something that has never happened before or since in the history nope. of America. Limited entirely to the latter part of 1968. Right. After the uh, uh, Robert Kennedy is, is shot, uh, people wonder what they're going to do about this, this terrible rise of violence in America. What are we going to do? Uh, how do we solve the problem represented by uh, this terrible assassination in this terrible year of years? It's uh, so many times worse than uh, 2020 uh, has yet aspired to be. And the answer, of course, is that uh, kids' cartoons are too violent. And uh, at the time, Hanna-Barbera was cranking out action-oriented kids' animated shows that had a lot of action and violence. And they had the uh, good old-fashioned hard-style action and violence of uh, comic books and other things that people weren't looking into uh, as to what the kids got. So there's like a space ghost and the Herculoids and uh, uh, properties like that where there were guns and characters getting killed and uh, all sorts of uh, stuff that all of a sudden... And terrifying wake, monsters. Yes, terrifying monsters. In the wake of all of this uh, disorder and violence, uh, suddenly an awareness arises within the networks that we need something more innocuous. And they say to Hanna-Barbera, we got to have no uh, violence will occur in America if we get the Herculoids and space ghost off the air. So show us something... Tamer and Scooby Doo is the result. So in Scooby Doo, the terrifying monsters are uh, real estate developers uh, with rubber masks on. They seem innocuous until they take off the masks and turn out to be real estate developers. <laughs> Scooby Doo never kills anyone. <laughs> Fred is never killed, and uh, therefore we uh, uh, get to a, a famous, still active uh, pop culture property. You know, in the seventies, they guest star with like Phyllis Diller and. The Harlem Globetrotters and all sorts Batman. of weird Batman, yeah. all sorts of weird stuff like that. So, Ken, how are you going to do this back shot? How are you going to make sure that after you save uh, Kennedy, which is presumably a matter of telling the Secret Service to watch out for Sirhan Sirhan, how do you have both? Robert Kennedy and Scooby Doo in the same timeline? Well, it's 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 a bank shot, as you say, because if you just tell people the Secret Service to watch out for Sirhan Sirhan then there's uh, only the sort of regularized low-level bubble of, of moral panic. And you can't guarantee that uh, the Archies, which is the first of these new toothless cartoons to air and is the spiritual father of uh, Scooby-Doo, uh, is produced. 
the notion of watching a, a teen singing group going around and having toothless Archie Andrews adventures is not something that uh, anybody's interested in. So the trick is to direct the moral panic as narrowly as possible at Saturday morning cartoons and specifically at cartoons of faux violence or, or of faux real violence. So the trick is you have to still involve Sirhan Sirhan. There has to be a, a presence, a problem that people can then feel like they solve because just solving riots with Saturday morning cartoons would, would seem ridiculous. I mean, that's, that's a, that's, that's a nonsensical notion. And, and I, I want to point out that apparently no one, no one is particularly upset about Saturday morning cartoons leading to the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. That's apparent. Well, you got to watch cartoons. What are you going to do? Oh, Robert Kennedy gets shot. Now it's a problem. <laughs> Yeah, well, James L. Ray seemed to have a a different motivation. Yeah, he did. They they probably didn't pretty need to clear. look look to his uh, his Saturday morning television viewing. Yeah, Sirhan Sirhan. By the way, uh, speaking of his motivation, people tend to treat it as a black box. Uh, even people who look at at uh, him as the as the assassin, which he was, uh, tend to sort of either uh, resolve it as uh, Palestinian nationalism or some one of the uh, uh, nest of tangled snakes that uh, show up in his diaries and his writings and things like that. He uh, claimed that he was uh, hypnotized and brainwashed. He claimed that he was being operated uh, by, uh, by, by greater powers through, through blackmail or a government conspiracy against him. It was a, it was a Macedoine, if you will, of all of the psychoses and neuroses of the era jambled up into one thing. So it's very hard for anyone to tease out the individual strains of basically his schizophrenic manifestations. And it's very hard, uh, as opposed to uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, who it's very easy to say, oh, he's a he's a communist and a failure, so he takes it out on handsome anti-communist, problem solved. Uh, with Sirhan Sirhan, it, it's very difficult to tease that out. And so the trick is to substitute that mess of a diary with one image that can draw the attention of moral panickers and newspapers. Not that those are the same thing at all, Robin. <laughs> and that image, of course, is Sir Han Sir Han's much discussed love for the Herculoids and his giant Herculoids posters on the wall. All of the Herculoids tie in cartoons and comic books littering the place. Uh, discussions of the Herculoids carefully inserted into his diaries, those sorts of things. And that becomes the easily graspable narrative hook for the media that says Sirhan Sirhan, Herculoid's fanatic, goes after RFK and is bravely tackled by Rosie Greer and uh, Rafer Johnson, who are perhaps pointed in that direction a little earlier than they might be by a florid alcoholic who is somehow nearby a Kennedy. Uh, not that that would ever happen. You have to get Sirhan Sirhan into the public eye, and then you have to get the public eye focused on Sirhan Sirhan's bizarre Herculoids fixation. That should at least free up the slot on Saturday morning uh, TV that leads to Scooby-Doo getting the nod. And again, it's a matter of the Archies was the show that was actually made to fill that gap. And then the Archies turned super successful and they said, give us more Archies shows. And it was uh, Fred Silverman saying, what if the Archies were fighting monsters that became eventually Scooby-Doo? And then uh, they, they, uh, they, they, they based uh, the Scooby-Doo characters on the many loves of Dobie Gillis, which is information that. I guess nobody needs then or now, but uh, is true. <laughs> then requires everyone to look up Dobie Gillis. It does require everyone. It, it's it's uh, all the Gilligan's Island stands are like, well, of course, Dobie Gillis. That was what Bob Denver was in before. What's wrong with you? Um, so now that we've dealt with those people. And, and so the specific uh, iteration is just 
popping that the, the Herculoids out of the out of the lineup and uh, replacing it with the Archies, and then the Archies spinning off to create Scooby Doo. It's not a direct. Uh, connection. The Archies are actually the the, the missing link there. So uh, we've uh, covered the important thing of keeping Scooby Doo in the timeline. But what else happens uh, because uh, Robert Kennedy is alive? He goes on to win the Democratic nomination for president, runs for president in 1968, beats Richard Nixon. So Nixon loses to a Kennedy again, and uh, then presides over a period of increasing catastrophe and the general run of things in our multiple RFK simulations is that uh, civil rights moves forward faster with more support from the top. Although uh, Richard Nixon was as pro civil rights, a Republican as existed at the time, almost it was not his priority. And uh, RFK was able to go in with a well of, of goodwill uh, that Nixon to put it bluntly, did not possess. Uh, and in Vietnam, RFK basically follows the same policy that Nixon does of Vietnamization, attempting to get out as honorably, to, to use the, the local uh, terminology as possible, uh, rather than just cutting and running. Um, because again, he knew that uh, the Republicans would savage him if he just up, up stakes left and Vietnam fell immediately. So you get basically the same policy in Vietnam. You get a somewhat more positive uh, civil rights movement. And so in 1972, when he runs against uh, California Governor Ronald Reagan, he loses, but not as badly as uh, McGovern does. He's still the Democratic president after four years of, of riots and mayhem. So he's still painted with the left wing of his party uh, in the same way McGovern was. Um, so he loses to Ronald Reagan in 1972. Reagan intensifies the Cold War uh, throughout the 70s. Unfortunately, he does it during the resource crisis. And uh, therefore, uh, it is not the winning strategy that it would be in the 80s. And uh, Jimmy Carter becomes president in 1980. And it's at that point that uh, Time Incorporated says, whoa, 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 shut it down. So uh, we don't know what happens after that. But uh, Time Incorporated doesn't like it. So. You know, what can I do? I'm a simple man with a time machine, Robin. Uh, well, the important thing is uh, Scooby-Doo is still... Uh, Scooby-Doo is still on the air. That's the, the air, important thing. Lines. Yes. And uh, on that note, I think we can uh, declare our work done and uh, head on off into... Uh, let's let's go have some Scooby snacks. Yeah, that'd be lovely. Maybe enjoy some uh, reruns of the of uh, Mater G. Krebs. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Astfagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Protect this podcast from being paved over by rubber mask-clad land developers by joining such backers as... Tony Kemp. David Miscarry. Jeremy French. John Kingdon. And Kevin J. Maroney. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest foray into gratuitously cat-themed casual wear. Excuse me while I nap this out. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.